the mic on, so uh, while he does that, I'm going to... Is anyone else worried that Ragnar doesn't have a jumper? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little concerned about that, Ragnar. There's nothing you can afford, nothing you can help me. <laughs> Hang on. How's that? Yes, fantastic. Thanks, mate. Uh, good morning, friends. It's great to be here with you this morning, and uh, sorry that I wasn't here with you last week. Uh, I've been... Kurt had stand in for me. I was a little bit crook. Um, and I think I'm just on the end of it. So I, can I just say I've had a COVID test and I'm COVID free, so you don't need to worry about that. Uh, but you may want to avoid me for other reasons. Um, uh, anyway, I'm just saying, I don't know if my throat's going to get through it this morning. I hope it does. I feel okay, but I know that I'm on the end of it. So uh, let's just see whether we get through or not. I'm going to pray that God would help me to do that and he'd help you to listen to me, particularly if it's hard to listen to. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the great privilege of being known and loved by you, the God of the universe. And thanks, Father, for this morning that we come together. It's no little thing that we gather together as your church, the church that you have saved and redeemed by the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us this morning to uh, reflect carefully on your word, that you would help us to understand who you are better and uh, what it means to be a child of the living God. I pray, Lord God, that you just help my voice to hold out so that we can get through this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Lucy would say that she loves Jesus, but she's not that interested in church. Maybe you can reflect and relate to, to Lucy. Uh, Linus would say, well, he's okay with church, but he's not that sold yet on why it's so important to serve in church. Why does that matter that much? Larissa, of course, loves church and realises that serving is really important. But she does wonder why it is that when people do give of themselves and, and work hard, sacrificially, why is it that if God's in it, wouldn't you expect success and not difficulty or suffering when you try to serve him? And they're good questions, aren't they? I'm indebted to another minister for them, but they've been helpful as I've reflected on this passage here in Ephesians this morning. They're the kind of questions that we might sometimes have, depending, I guess, on how far down the, uh, the Christian road that we are. And they're all questions that the Apostle Paul is answering in his letter to the churches in and around Ephesus. Uh, Paul has already thrown open the doors on God's purposes for all time and for all things. Uh, we, we saw back in chapter 1, verse 10 of Ephesians, Paul shows us exactly where all of history is heading. Uh, God's purpose is, if you look in chapter 1, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is in Jesus things in heaven and things on earth. See, God's purposes are for all time and all eternity, on earth and in heaven, is to unite everything under the rule of Jesus Christ. And, and we've seen how God's plan is already advancing over the last few weeks. Uh, as Christian believers, we already have the great privilege of having our sins forgiven, uh, of being adopted into God's family, of being sealed by God's Holy Spirit for our, our glorious inheritance, which is to come. And the outcome of all that we saw, of course, is unity. We saw that uh, just a couple of weeks ago. God is making people one with him and one with each other, united in Christ Jesus as the church. But one of the questions that we might have is, how? How is he doing that? I mean, our world doesn't really look like God is in control. The church doesn't appear very strong or even united. 
But at the end of his first prayer, in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul prays twice in the first half of this letter, but he prays that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then he goes on to show us what that power looks like. So in chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, I think you can see it there on the screen, uh, it's God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, it's God's power that has raised then believers who were once dead in their sins and facing God's judgment. He's raised them to spiritual life. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, we saw God's power reconciling communities. Jews and Gentiles who were once hostile towards one another were brought together as the church. Jesus had brought peace and reconciliation through his death, making one new household of God. And so the church is the powerful work of God. The church is the body of Christ. It's the one institution that is going to survive into all eternity. And I guess with that brief recap, we, we come to our, our passage today in chapter 3 of Ephesians because Paul begins there in verse 1 with one thought before he then digresses and picks up something else that's really important that he'll then go on and pick up again. He'll pick up verse 1 again in verse 14. But we're going to just start there in the way that Paul describes himself in verse 1 as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, notice. See verse 1 of chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now you might remember uh, that at the opening of this letter, Paul described himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's a great title, isn't it? I mean, ambassador of the risen and ruling Lord Jesus, sent by God himself. And so what a contrast to what we see Paul saying now that he's a prisoner. See, where is the power of God at work in Paul's life now? And notice that Paul says he's also a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. See, Paul knows that some of the Ephesians, some of the church in Ephesus, may be discouraged by the fact that he's in jail. And notice his concern for them over in verse 13 of chapter 3. See what he says there? He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The great Paul, who brought the gospel to Ephesus and saw thousands saved and lives transformed, is now a prisoner in a Roman jail. But notice, he doesn't actually see himself as a prisoner of Rome, but notice what he says, a prisoner of, or better for, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who has captured Paul, his heart, his mind, his will. And notice that Paul isn't really surprised by his suffering. Remember that Paul was the one who used to inflict the suffering on Christians and on the church in Acts, the book of Acts. But Jesus had saved Paul, who was once known as Saul, and he had appointed him to share the good news of Jesus with everyone. Have a look at what Jesus says when he appoints uh, Paul to be his apostle back in chapter eight, Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Um, Ananias, God sends Ananias to, to uh, Paul, or Jesus sends Ananias to Paul. But the Lord said to him, go, to An he says that to Ananias, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul may appear weak as he sits bound in a Roman jail. 
But God's power is at work, even in Paul's imprisonment. So instead of despising the Gentiles like he once did, now he's suffering for them so that they might know how much Jesus has done for them. You see, that is God's power at work. Well, in verse 2, Paul changes tack to explain to them something really important. He speaks of himself as a revealer of God's mystery. And we've already been thinking about mysteries this morning. But before we get there, I want to give you three scenarios about my life, uh, of which only one is true. And I want you to tell me uh, which one of them is actually true. So don't call out, but here you go. Here's the three scenarios of my life, which one of them is true. Uh, I I once went fishing with the NRL's top referee, uh, I once abseiled down a 20-metre cliff in the Blue Mountains. Uh, or thirdly, I once joined in a game of touch football with the St George players outside Cogra Jubilee Oval. Now, um, I'm going to get, get you to give me a show of hands here. Who, uh, who thinks that I once went fishing uh, with the NRL's top referee? Hey, look at that, you know, at Wild Street last week, there were less than that and double the people. But there you go, good. Uh, who... Um, who, ha- who thinks I abseiled down a 20-metre cliff in, in, in the Blue Mountains? Okay, pretty much a similar sort of number. And who thinks I had a game of touch footy with the St George players outside? Of- you guys are reasonably evenly split. Okay, did anyone talk to anybody at Wild Street last week? Because I actually went uh, fishing with the NRL's top re- referee, uh, which is the guy who was on the screen back then, Greg Hartley a little while ago. Uh, anyway, th- that, that's by the by. You've just, I've just exposed one of the mysteries of Rod Cocking's former life. <laughs> you know, when I, when I looked up the, up the dictionary for the word mystery, I found there's just quite a few definitions there, but here's just a couple of them. Uh, the first one, an event or a situation that is difficult to understand or explain. Uh, secondly, secondly the, the quality of being strange, secret or puzzling. Uh, and so the, the word mystery is actually this key word that's used in Ephesians, especially here in chapter 3, but the question is, what does Paul mean when he uses the word? Is he talking about something that is difficult to understand and explain? Or is he talking about something strange or puzzling? Well, no, he's not speaking about either of those things. The way he uses the word mystery is more like the way that I just used it then with you. That is, I had information about myself that you didn't know, and I revealed it to you. I exposed something that up until now you didn't or couldn't know. And so the word that Paul uses here just simply means a temporary secret which once revealed is known and understood, a secret no longer. Now the other point to make about the way that Paul uses the word here is that it relates to the divine. In other words, it's a secret relating to God, which he always intended to be revealed and to be understood. So what is this secret, or this mystery, as it's called? Uh, We've already had a a preview, haven't we? Uh, But we've actually already seen the word used back in chapter 1, verse 9. So back there, uh, remember, uh, Paul says that God lavished his grace upon us, verse 9 in chapter 1, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So the mystery that God has revealed to us is about Jesus. Specifically, that when the times reach their fulfilment, that is, the time that God has appointed, all things will be united under Christ. There will be one head over the whole universe, 
That's Jesus. And everyone and everything will be in subjection to him. Now, God has told us that that is his plan, his purpose for the universe that we can know about and we can make a response to. But here in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul speaks about one specific aspect of this mystery. Have a look at it with me. Verse 6 of chapter 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The specific aspect of this mystery is about the Gentiles, that is, all of us non-Jews. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Uh, This mystery is about the Gentiles, especially about their inclusion as fellow heirs together with Israel of all of God's promises. The mystery is not that Gentiles were going to be included in God's family along with the Jews. That was actually God's promise right from the beginning. We read earlier in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, that God intended all nations to be included in his blessing. So that's not the mystery here. Uh, The mystery is the way that it happens. The Jews thought that you had to become a Jew to be welcomed into God's family. But what Paul is saying is that both Jew and Gentile, that is everyone, are reconciled together as Christians, not Jews. The mystery is Jesus Christ. Gentiles were heirs together with Israel, sharers together in God's promises, not through Judaism, but through Jesus. See, that's the dynamite. They didn't see it coming like this. Incidentally, do you recognise God's incredible wisdom here? Um, God has come to a deeply divided society. We saw last time the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And he has brought about a new unity, that is a new united people of God under the loving headship of Jesus. Now, of course, not all want to be a part of that new community. And today, as with all of history, division is a massive stain on our society and our world. Now, we we live in a deeply divided and hate-filled world, a world that largely rejects God. And with all of our attention to education and our marvellous intellects, what most comes to the fore is our great incompetence. I mean, think about it. We have the the most astonishing technology that gives us the most marvellous possibilities. But have a think about where our most sophisticated and ultimate technology is used. In our weaponry. That which we spend the most money on is used to hate and kill and bring disunity. But God has a plan to overcome all of that. His plan was a mystery once hidden, but now revealed to us. A plan to bring peace and unity under Jesus Christ. That is peace and unity with God and with each other. And Paul tells us that he has done that by enabling all people, both Jews, the chosen people of God, and Gentiles, who were once alienated from God's promises, to come to God and share in his promises in exactly the same way through Jesus Christ. Okay, so God's secret has been exposed, his mystery revealed, and one of the important issues in this passage is what we learn of the way that God reveals who he is and his plans and his purposes for us. Uh, It's a a question I've often been asked as someone hears the Bible read and explained, and that question is, how do the Bible writers, how does Paul know the things that he speaks about? 
Well, Paul himself, I think, gives an answer to this question uh, right here. Have a look from verse 2 of chapter 3. He says, The assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. See, the question is, how does Paul know God's plans and purposes? How did he find out the details of God's mystery? Well, he found out the same way as you found out what, that I once went fishing with the NRL's top referee. That is, I revealed it to you. Paul says that God's mystery was revealed to him, verse 3. And in verse 2, he says that God graciously made him a steward of his mystery. In other words, God revealed to Paul, as one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, his mystery. And the reason he did that was so that Paul might be an administrator, a steward of God's mystery. God chose Paul, along with the other apostles, to implement the details of his mystery. And it was, a, it was his role that uh, had been appointed by God uh, to get the secret out, uh, to tell people, to explain God's purposes to all who were willing to hear. And it never ceased to amaze Paul that God had given him that task to reveal that mystery to us. See verse 7? He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. See, Paul was especially commissioned by God, verse 7. A gift, he says, of God's grace. Verse 8, even though, he says, that I am the least of all the saints, given to preach, especially to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's a wonderful description, that isn't it? The unsearchable riches of Christ. That is, they're boundless. They're limitless. Jesus Christ is the one who never runs out of good things to give. Paul became a servant to this gospel to announce the momentous news of salvation and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he served humbly and at great personal cost for the sake of others. There should be no pride, should there, in serving Christ and his people. I mean, to serve Christ, Paul tells us, is a gift, verse 7. A privilege, not a burden nor something to be proud of. See, what would it look like to come to church each week to humbly and sacrificially serve others? What it would look like to go to your growth group with humility, ready to serve the other members of your group? We don't have to be a critic from the sidelines. We can get involved, not because we deserve it, but simply because of his grace. You know, it's amazing that God would choose Paul for such a task, especially when we know that Paul used to be the most, uh, most violent opponent of the church. He used to be a central figure in the hostility between Jew and Gentile, but by God's grace, he became a part of the foundation upon which God continues to build his church. How does that happen? Once again, only by the power of God. See, Paul describes himself as less than the least of all the saints in verse 8. See, what that reminds us is that no one is beyond Christ's redemption. No one is beyond Christ's willingness to love and restore in relationship with him. No one is beyond God's power to use us 
in the glorious service of the gospel. It's through the Apostle Paul that God's mystery is now revealed to us. See, I wonder whether you've responded to Jesus' love for you. Because that's the heart of this message. Jesus loves you. Our access to God and his purposes and plans that were for a time unknown come through the apostolic word. Paul, the apostle, has been appointed by God to speak to us, to reveal the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, to reveal how God has put an end to the hostility between Jew and Gentile by making one way and only one way to be right with God, to reveal God's new way of peace and unity through the church, which is to be a multiracial community, the body of Christ. You can't be a Bible-believing Christian and not believe in Paul. You can't be a Gentile believer and be anti-Paul. I mean, he's our apostle. And so the way we know God and his plans is as we read what the Apostle Paul says in the Bible. We can't understand God and his plans in any other way because that is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. I don't know about you, but do you ever look out at our world and think, what on earth are we doing? Uh, What on earth is going on? And peace and unity are not the words that I think you would use to describe our world. And to be honest, it's hard to imagine a solution, I think, to the dysfunctionality and that characterises our world. I mean, people, you might have heard of people often refer to our world as a global village. The hope is, I think, that by uh, thinking of ourselves in that way, we will be more inclined to be united, to work together, to feel a greater degree of connection and bonding with our global neighbours. But given the hatred and discord that permeates our international relations, that would appear a completely forlorn hope, wouldn't it? I mean, Australia is obviously not as bad as some, but we're still a good example of an increasingly dysfunctional human society. We may not be at war as such, but we have a growing list of enemies within and without. We used to be a beacon of light for the success of multiculturalism, but we can be just as hate-filled as the next country. And it's not just out there, is it? For some of us, it's actually very close to home. There's discord and jealousy and rivalry and hatred in the workplace. There's anger and bitterness between neighbours, with fear often being the result. It's also in the schoolyard. Young people can do despicable things to one another at times. Some of the most hurtful things I've ever heard come out of a young person's mouth is coming out of a young person's mouth towards another young person. Sadly, instead of teaching kids how to be good friends, how to treat others with respect, how to care for people, many parents teach their kids how to defend themselves, how to be able to fight and be aggressive so as not to be picked on. And how sad it is when these are the values that we think we need to instill into our children. And there's no less conflict and pain and sadness in family life, is there? We hurt one another. We take revenge, we don't know how to disagree in love, we harbour grudges instead of forgiving. I mean, every, at every level, peace and unity are hard to come by. I mean, I'm tempted to get more and more distressed, to be increasingly fearful for the society that our children will have to endure. And can I tell you that if I wasn't a Christian, I probably would be distressed. Because left to our own devices, I can't see any hope whatsoever. But God has given me hope. God has given us hope. 
I mean, UN sanctions and peace treaties haven't worked, government policies haven't worked, campaigns for tolerance don't work. But God has made a way of peace and unity first with himself and then with each other. How? Well, we've seen it throughout Ephesians, haven't we? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. We saw it very clearly in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. The question is, where do we see this peace and unity? Well, Paul actually tells us where we, we see that peace and unity today. See verse 10 uh, of chapter 3. See, Paul preaches, I'm going to pick it up from verse 9. Paul preaches so as to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Notice here what Paul's saying. It's the church that is at the centre of God's plans to bring about peace and unity. It's the church that is to display, or that does display, God's multifaceted wisdom. It kind of sounds funny, doesn't it? Because we're just regular people trying to negotiate life. The church doesn't usually look that impressive. We're weak, we're flawed. But as the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places see the church, they see that God is fulfilling his purposes just as he promised. They see that God's plans for peace and unity are assured, even in all of our weakness. And it should be seen at some level, here and now in the earthly church, we should be living it out even if remaining somewhat flawed for the time being. And it will be seen throughout the entire cosmos when God brings his plans to fulfilment in Jesus Christ. See, do you see the importance that God has given to the church? The church is of eternal significance. It's not just a means to an end, it's an end in itself. So does your attitude to church reflect God's attitude to the church? Because there's no room for a half-hearted attitude to church, is there? God is creating one new people from every race and culture who are at peace with him and with one another, all under the headship of Jesus Christ. In the church, the wisdom of God is declared. In the church, the power of God is declared. So go to church to demonstrate to the universe the wisdom of God and the glory of Christ. See, because God alone is able to achieve peace and unity where all other human efforts have and will fail. How should we respond then to this incredible plan of God's? We'll just have a look at Paul here for a moment. I think it'd be best to let him be our guide. Uh, Verse 13 is the second of only two commands that Paul gives in the whole first half of his letter. Uh, We'll see them flowing thick and fast in the second half, but only two in the first half, and this is one of them. Verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Life is not good or easy for Paul, is it? And Paul's in prison because of his actions as a Christian, because of the things that he's written in this letter. And in verse 13, he tells them not to lose heart over what he's suffering for them, because what he is suffering is for their glory. See, things seemed pretty bleak for Paul. But you will recall that things looked extremely bleak for Jesus when he hung dying on a cross. 
And yet all the unsearchable riches of Christ come to us because of Jesus' suffering, not in spite of them. See, ministry is never a failure, even if it ends with or includes suffering. Because God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit will build his church. Now, and sometimes we're tempted to discouragement, to lose heart. The church doesn't always look that impressive. It's, it's often mocked and ridiculed. But Paul wants us to see beyond the surface. Paul's confidence in God and his enthusiasm for Christ and the gospel aren't actually dampened by his personal difficulties here. In fact, they override his personal difficulties. I mean, how about you? If you're a Christian, is that the way it is with you? Or is it sometimes the other way around? So that your personal difficulties override your confidence in God and your enthusiasm for Christ, for his people and for his gospel. You know, I take it we sometimes struggle with this one. I know I do at times to my own disappointment. But here's Paul in prison, not complaining that God has made his life hard, but rejoicing because of the unsearchable riches of Christ that are being proclaimed. We can't have a minimalist view of church, can we? Not if we understand what Paul's saying to us here properly. So let me suggest that we do what Paul does and bow before our Heavenly Father, who we now have access to in prayer through Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the unsearchable riches that come to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for his love that overcomes all our fears, for his grace that covers our deepest regrets and sin, and for his promise to unite us with himself and each other in true unity and peace through the church. Father, help us not to lose heart in Jesus. Please override our personal difficulties with a true confidence and joy in Christ, in his people and his good news of salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.